0: welcome everyone back to the burn bag podcast i'm here joined with aurelia vanderwild um my co-host here and girl security fellow who helped me lead this really fascinating discussion with dr betsy stevenson so hi aurelia how are you who are you more importantly
1: i'm doing good yeah i'm currently a student in my second year here at Agnes Scott college where i'm studying economics and international relations so it was really interesting to hear a lot of Betsy Stevenson, a lot of Dr. Stevenson's perspectives.
0: Yeah, no, I was really happy to have you on the call just because me personally did not, you know, was not a strong performer in my econ classes. I, I I got through them for sure, but I think, you know, coming from the university of Chicago, I get a different perspective than maybe you, or even Steve, Dr. Stevenson was able to provide. So, um, You know, I was really grateful for the types of questions you asked. And I think that kind of brought out some of the interesting insights that we learned today.
1: Yeah, she did have a lot to say, especially I think her takes on like unpaid labor and how that influences GDP and how like I think that looking to but she said about like how having paternity leave as something that can help with that is not something I had really thought of as a way to help make it easier to step in and out of the workforce.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think also, you know, just how difficult it really is to measure and and put a number to defining unpaid labor, which I think we go a little bit more in depth in in some of the responses that she was able to give us. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, in this conversation, we really wanted to get at the crux of understanding, you know, what it means to be economically healthy and how that plays in, into ensuring that a stable economy really benefits our national security. So I think we were able to, to be successful in learning a little bit more about that here.
1: Yeah, I think that looking at the economy from both like a micro and macro perspective is really interesting. It's hard to like balance the two and determine like, are you going to look at the individual or are we looking at the U.S. as a whole and even mm-hmm. these vast disparities in the U.S.? In terms of wealth, we're still like one of the highest GDPs in the world.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, um, for everyone listening, you know, here is Dr. Betsy Stevenson. Welcome, everyone, to the Burn Bag Podcast. I'm here joined with my co-host
1: Aurelia. Hi, my name is Aurelia Vandewald. I am currently a sophomore at Agnes Scott, where I'm double majoring in economics and international relations. We are also joined by Betsy Stevenson, who is the Professor of Public Policy and Economics at the University of Michigan. She served as a member of the Council of Economic Advisers from 2013 to 2015, where she advised President Obama on social policy, labor market, and trade issues. She served as the Chief Economist of the U.S. Department of Labor from 2010 to 2011, advising the Secretary of Labor on labor policy and participating as the Secretary's deputy to the White House economic team.
0: So thank you so much, Dr. Stevenson, for being able to join us. And I just want to shout out Aurelia because she is very much well-versed in the world of economics much more than I am. Um, So really excited to be able
2: to speak with you today. (laughs) Great. Well, I'm excited to talk with you.
0: Awesome. All right. I think we can dive right in, Aurelia, if you want to start it off here.
1: Yeah, so students today may learn about personal budgets, but less about what a national economy is and why it's important. Can you describe why America's economy matters to U.S. national security?
2: Well, the first thing I wanted to say is actually the economy really is just you. It is about what we're all doing just added up. So I, one of the things that I find frustrating when I hear, um, the press and people talk about the economy, it's as if the economy is like this third person we have to keep happy in order for all the people inside the country to be happy. And that's not right, right? The, we are the economy. So, um, when we think about an economy doing well, it means we, as a collective, are doing well, and that's obviously really important for for people's well being. When we think about you know why does it, it matter how the the overall economy is doing? It really is this uh, assessment of how how our how our companies are doing, how our people are doing and are we leading the world in terms of research and development which puts us in a position um you know obviously of, of great influence in the world
1: thank you and i know that you've written a textbook in the past so what do you think can be done to help improve this communication and bridge that gap between what people understand to be the economy and what the economy is and what's made up of all of us
2: well, you know, some of that is actually, I will put the burden on economists. And you know a, a lot of times people, particularly in academia, um, re- of all fields want to speak in really coded language that reflects what they've learned inside their profession. So they speak in an inside, you know, insider's language, and that's very um, exclusionary. It means that people don't understand what they're saying. So, you know, I, I actually recently won an award at the University of Michigan for public engagement. And they asked me, what advice do you have for other professors who want to be able to have a lot of influence in the world? And I said, well, you know, you could stop by reading, reading Hemingway's tips for writing. And Hemingway says things like use short sentences, use simple words, stick to the facts. Like it, it's, we really do need to learn to write plainly. And I, you know, Hemingway was a journalist before he became a famous author, and what he became famous as an author for was taking that journalistic style, simple words, simple sentences into fiction and novel writing. And I think we need to take that journalistic style into communicating academic research, communicating economics. We don't have to make it more complicated than it really is, particularly when what we're really describing is the choices people are making in their their everyday lives. Now, one of the most famous definitions of economics is the study of man in the ordinary business of life. Well, if it's... Now we should say the study of humans or people uh, of all genders in the ordinary business of life. Well, shouldn't we therefore speak and communicate in a way that people engaged in the ordinary business of life can understand?
0: I think that also goes to your point of what you were talking about, how you know people have to understand to differentiate or at least not differentiate the economy as a separate entity, like it is us. Um, so, you know, with, I guess, like conventional economic thinking, how would you define or understand what it means to be economically healthy or economically stable in the country?
2: I think what it, it I, I really love that question. Like, what does it mean to be economically healthy? Because it doesn't, what it means is everybody's able to take advantage of their skills and put them to the best use for themselves and society. And that you know, that that's really what it means to be healthy. It doesn't mean we have to work all the time. So we could maximize GDP by working all the time, but that wouldn't necessarily be healthy. But what we want is for people to be able to make the choice to be use their skills where they're most needed you know and not face a bunch of barriers that get in the way to them doing that and there's all sorts of barriers that historically get in the way of people being able to put their skills to the best use you know they might not be able to find the right job to use their skills they might be excluded by gender by race by uh because of historic inequities and ongoing inequities that prevent people from uh, being able to use their skills most effectively, or they may have life circumstances that mean that they're so focused on day-to-day survival that they they are unable to access the resources that are necessary to be able to propel themselves into a place where they can be as successful and useful in society as possible. You know, one of the things that first attracted me to economics was thinking about what I really saw as the tragedy of people who could see a path forward where they could be successful and economically stable, but they couldn't get there because they couldn't access the resources. So we think about lower income countries, maybe they couldn't access borrowing. Um, Maybe they couldn't access education because they were too busy making sure they could eat enough that day to spend time learning. Even in the United States, there are people who fall down on hard times, when they might need to borrow, or they might need some support to be able to get back on their feet, and they just can't access that. And they get stuck in these, um, in in really bad places, and there's not a way for them to get out. And I and that is so I see economic stability is when there are paths that people can follow that mean that, you know, even if we have bad times, there's a path towards uh, recovery.
0: I wanted to ask also, you know, a question. So we talked a little bit about what exactly economic health can be defined. Um, and I was interested in, in you know, picking your brain on prior experiences as former chief economist at the U.S. Department of Labor. How did that inform your understanding of what national economic interests were at the time, if, if any, if politics plays a part in it, if there is any, you know, like what exactly was, were the priorities, and what do you think still
2: remain consistent among administrations? well the the priorities I mean if you think about the Department of Labor, the priorities are making sure people can find work. Americans can find work right, and that they can navigate that work and they can navigate their relationship with employers so often government needs to to mediate the relationship between employers and workers, and that might be because government's going to set some Guidelines around forming unions and then the unions really mediate unions and employers can mediate that relationship together. And if there's not a lot of room for unions and the government comes in and plays, you know, direct roles by things like requiring workers' compensation and then deciding whether, um, a, you know, a worker is eligible for workers' compensation or unemployment insurance and these kinds of relationships between employers and and workers. I mean, ultimately, even in a, you know, what what a lot of people, I think, get confused between what does it mean to be a free market or a capitalist society, because they sometimes think pro-business is the same thing as being pro-market, and they're not. At all the same thing. In fact, most businesses are trying to fight to reduce market competition. Why? Because they're going to be most profitable if they have fewer competitors. So businesses will argue for anti market um, outcomes. And so if you're pro market, what you're pro is pro competition. Well, how do you ensure competition? Well, one thing you have to do is make sure that everybody's sort of playing by a fair set of rules, because we don't want, you know, some, we don't want businesses sort of trying to prevent any competitors from arising, because that leads us into an economy that's not very competitive. Um, And so we need government to play a role in ensuring that there's thriving competition think about it like imagine if you're trying to play sports and we had no referees right if we have no referees like you the thing can break down into a lot of arguments and if we have no rules then it's not sport it's a free-for-all and a brawl um and so if we think about what market competition's all about there's some rules around it and then we need some referees and everybody can play a really nice game and let the best mousetrap win right that's the what market competition's supposed to be all about i think what tends to happen and every you know every politician regardless of party is always having to has to watch out for is special interests that would like to drag things in one direction or another. And those special interests can be businesses that want to see less competition, they can be on the uh, they can be on the worker side, they can be on any side right The whole point of special interests is that there are people coming and trying to steer the rules or steer the judgments in their direction. And the challenge is that the typical person is not well represented in those battles. So, you know, what the typical person wants is an economy that's humming along with lots of different businesses, lots of different businesses competing with each other. And we don't usually have a, anybody doing a good job of representing, like, let's have fair rules and fair refereeing because that you know that's what we think of as like the the public interest and that's not a specialized interest that's the big wide interest and i think that can be hard to keep in mind um, i truly believe that the council of economic advisors where i served in president obama's second term tries to play that role and it tries to play that role by assessing who do we think the winners and losers are going to be of any policy decision and presenting that in a straightforward way. So then they can argue, everybody else can argue about whose interests should matter more, but at least we know who the winners and losers are going to be. Because the reality is, I don't think there's anything, any change you can make, any policy change you can make where we're going to, not going to have at least some losers and not certainly we're not going to have we wouldn't want to do it if there weren't some winners so the question is how do we always how do we balance those winners and losers
1: and with that question how do you view you mentioned unions earlier and i know in economics we talked a lot about how unions can impact like the equilibrium wage that you end up how do you view the role of unions in making in the labor market and in determining that people are able to have their voices heard? And how do you think they could work together, possibly with like the boards and the economic?
2: The thing is unions can be incredibly helpful, particularly, you know, in really large businesses. So if you, you know, take a look at a business that's been fighting unionization desperately, Starbucks, Um, You know, their workers want to unionize, management doesn't want it. And what's interesting to me is that there is a huge disconnect for the people who are running Starbucks and they're sitting in their offices and they're just not in the stores every day. They don't see what the workers see. And so there is potential benefit to both from a union, because that benefit would be that you have someone who's actually seeing what's happening in the stores every day, talking to the people who see what's happening in the stores every day, and bringing that information into discussions. Now, in in the Nordic countries, um, often it's required that the union play a role in in management decisions by law, they want you know more union involvement, and often it'll be the union when the company's in trouble that can see the path forward. You know, if you now I'll make a pop culture reference. If you ever saw the movie or the musical Newsies, you know one of the thing the newsboys talk about is like, "Hey, if you'd come to us, we have our own ideas about what might help you sell more papers," and that you know the disney (laughs) it's so funny that it's disney points out in this story like that the problem with not having any conversation with the newsboys meant that they made a decision which was to raise the price to the newsboys um without discussing it with them and they really rebelled on that at that and if they'd had conversations they might have been able to come to a solution that would have actually kept them both happy and i think that's i think that's why unions play a role when, they're, when they can facilitate that kind of communication. In some situations, like maybe you don't need unions. If you're a small company, you don't need your 10 workers to be unionized because you're gonna have conversations with your 10 workers every day. But when you're talking about these big companies, it can be really hard for them to really understand what's happening at the level of the worker if they don't have any organized way of making sure that there's communication
0: switching over a little bit to kind of like a macro understanding of economic power and influence, how would you say that the U.S. as as a whole kind of projects this economic power
2: to potentially influence
0: other countries?
2: So that that question is a little bit outside my lane. Um, So I think if we think about why does the U.S. have so much influence? It has so much influence because it's big we have a lot of people and then per person we have a lot of money so there are other countries that have you know nearly as much money per person as we do but they have fewer people and there are other countries that have as many people or more people than we have but they have less money per person so the united states is big and rich and that has a huge influence in the world, that means that we tend to do a lot of innovating here and that innovating spills over to other countries. And those those spillovers are often very positive and important to other countries' economic development. So, you know, often in healthcare and pharmaceuticals, you know, one of the things people get really upset about is Americans pay a lot for prescription drugs. We get the latest and greatest new cures through prescription drugs, but eventually those trickle out to the rest of the world where they all have regulations that mean that they don't pay very much for those drugs. And so the US is pr- essentially providing, you know, free research and development into new pharmaceuticals for the rest of the world. The rest of the world really needs us to do that <laughs> because. You know, they need those drugs and we saw the kind of leadership role we could play in developing COVID vaccines, right? That was, um, we weren't the only country in the COVID vaccine game, but, um, we sure did hit it out of the park and that was really helpful for the rest of the world. So I think that's, that's one aspect. Um, obviously just, you know, we, we sell to the rest of the world and the rest of the world sells to us. So there are, there are countries out there where, you know, they rely on their sales to the U.S. Um, we don't really rely on any one country in that way, even though we hear a lot of talk about China. But, you know, if you're a small country like Haiti, then, you know, it really matters if the U.S. is going to buy your stuff or not. And so I think that's a another way. And then, of course, because we have so much money, the U.S. has the ability to shape foreign policy using resources. So do we, we have carrots and we have sticks, right? You know, those are sanctions and we see a lot of that going on with, with Russia right now. But we also have, um, those are the sticks, but we also have carrots, things where we can invest and we can help, you know, we can uh, loan money to other countries, we can invest in other countries, we can support their development. And so I think that, that that that's what happens when you are a country with a lot of people and a lot of people who have a lot of money, you know, sometimes people forget, you know, they get so frustrated with the day to day and uh, prices are rising in the US or maybe things have slowed down. The truth is, you know, if I look back at, you know, my grandparents who were born during the Spanish flu outbreak, like I've lived a much, much richer life, not just me personally, but my generation has lived a much richer life than their generation did. Um, and that that economic growth we've experienced has been faster than most other countries.
1: You mentioned a little bit about how the U.S. has so much money, especially per capita. Could you talk a little bit more about the, the difference between like GNP and GDP and why these are useful and then how GDP could influence national priorities such as infrastructure planning. Yeah,
2: so um, before we sort of traveled and traded so much in the world, a lot of people focused on GMP, um, but GMP, GMP tells you really how much the residents of a country have available to them to spend but it whereas gdp just tells you how much work gets done in a country regardless of sort of who owns it so um the way to think about that is when we we used to measure gross national product um, today we measure gross domestic product. so what's the difference so if i decide if i fly out to london and i give a talk for a private sector company in london and they pay me an honorarium and I fly back home. That counts in GDP as an export. I exported my professional knowledge. I gave them a talk. Now, if I move to London, I open a factory, I hire 500 British citizens, I pay them all and they start generating income for my big factory that's located in London. Well, we're not gonna count all of that as American product because as all the work's being done by people in the UK. Under GNP, we would would have because it was owned by an American. Now, under GDP, when Toyota opens a factory in the United States and it's all Americans doing the work, well, we're gonna count that as part of our, what we're producing. And we're not going to count it if GM goes and opens a factory in another country and a bunch of work gets done by people in another country and gets paid to them. We're not gonna count all that income as American. So when we think about GDP, we can think about the, the what gets produced in the United States, what gets earned in the United States, but what gets earned by Americans in the U.S. And we can think about the value added. So there, there are different ways to measure GDP. We can measure it as total income. We can measure it as total value added. We can measure it as a uh, total amount of what's produced. And they all, by definition, should be the same thing. But what really matters with with GDP is focusing on the people who are inside the United States.
1: Thank you. And. In the labor economics class, we've been talking a lot about like unpaid labor and like how much of this unpaid labor isn't counted into the GDP. So, could you discuss a little bit uh, as to why all of the unpaid labor of child rearing, caretaking, is not counted into the GDP, and is there a way that we can measure the labor that goes in? When we can measure the labor that goes into these roles?
2: So, this is the biggest downside of GDP is that it measures what gets traded, but it doesn't measure what doesn't measure everything we produce, and. So this obvious glaring point is that if I stay home and look after my kids, it's not in GDP. If I send my kids to look after to to childcare and somebody else provides it and I pay them, then what I've paid them gets counted in GDP. And you know, this is this downside of GDP is is much broader than even childcare, right? Like if if I go and I buy a sandwich From a sandwich shop, that's counted in GDP. If I make a sandwich at home, well, all the ingredients are counted because I bought them at the grocery store. But the labor of putting the sandwich together is not counted. If I, um, you know, if I grow my own tomatoes and I eat my own tomato, the 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 seeds I bought are counted in GDP. But the all the effort of growing the tomato is no longer in in GDP, and I, the problem is where is how to like the problem of counting this what we produce for ourselves is is that it's just really really it's just a really difficult task it's a difficult measurement task so. Um, you know, we all have 24 hours in the day and we could tally up what we do, what we produce in all of those 24 hours and some of it's at work and then there's the stuff at home. So, you know, we're, but when, when we would go to measure that, it, there are real questions of, well, what's, should we count leisure? Are we producing leisure services for ourselves? I am reading a book to myself. I am providing leisure services. If I go to a reading and I pay if I, you know pay to go see a, a one woman play and she is you know, not reading to me, but acting, um, that goes into GDP. But if I'm reading to myself, should that go? Into To GDP, so how would we distinguish leisure? I you know when I'm growing that tomato, is that home production, or is that just a leisure activity? because it's really you know a Zen experience to get out into nature and grow your own produce? And so I think that that I mean the, just literally the measurement difficulties is one of the reasons why what we've always measured is tradable goods. Um, you know, and it's, I, I think we should value the things that we make for ourselves. And that's one of the reasons why we can't just say everybody should maximize GDP because, you know, maybe there is some joy in doing some things for yourself and, you know, we're in a, a culture where you know there's a lot of outsourcing all the activities of you know of sort of daily life and you know I honestly I've given students this ad- advice you know if you're trying to to build your career a lot of careers are are like they take off like a rocket you need to be dedicating 24 seven to them in the first, you know, at least the first five years, maybe the first 10 years. And, you know, you, it gets easier from there, but the way to do that is you outsource everything, right? You buy your vegetables chopped or you buy your meals out, you send your laundry out. You just, you work, 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 and you try to not do anything. But as I've gotten older, I've also seen, That's a kind of dreary way to live. There's a joy in folding your own laundry. Um, And so I I think that's why we need to not maximize GDP. I know there's a lot of people who would like to try to figure out how to measure these things and put them in GDP, but I think it can't just be childcare because what about folding your own laundry, doing your own laundry? What about making your own meals? um and i don't think that it not necessarily solves the problem of valuing caregiving to simply start paying people who are doing caregiving for people that they love i think what we have to start doing is valuing caregiving as an activity full, you know, and that, that will be in putting more value on the people that we do hire to help us with caregiving, as well as putting more value on our time that is spent in, in caregiving.
1: And just to follow up with that, I think that with COVID, we had a lot more people staying at home and a lot of like there was more burden on mothers in some cases as child care was closed. How do you think that COVID or do you think that covid ended up changing the view that people view labor and like domestic labor? Um
2: I I think so. You know, what we saw for sure was covid hit women hardest. It hit women hardest um because they lost the most jobs because um they were in the types of jobs that needed to shut down and then as um and then as you you mentioned um it was also the case that like as school shut down, a lot of moms took on the the schoolwork you know they um you know, they were the ones who either had to quit their job or stay stay home. And they also were the ones who really focused on teaching. And I think we had a lot of women feeling really burnt out as a result of everything they had to do. But as we're coming to the other side of it, you know, it's women who've actually gone back into the labor force at higher rates than men, including mothers. And when we look at surveys, fathers felt really sort of really strongly impacted by what happened during the pandemic. And the men were more likely than women in a survey I did in 2021 to say that they were going to make a change to their career, like so that they were more flexible or able to spend more time with their kids. And a lot of other surveys that I've seen show that fathers wanted to spend more time with that. The fathers enjoyed the extra time they got during COVID and they were reluctant to give it back. Um, you know, what we're seeing is that parents are working at rates that are even higher than what they were doing prior to the pandemic, but there's less use of childcare. So I think one of the things that's come out of COVID is it's why people don't want to give back. It's why people don't want to give up on the hybrid work or the, you know, the work from home is because a lot of parents are making that work for them with um, a lot of parents are making that, you know, work without having to use as much childcare. So there was a, a really good piece in the New York Times on this, and somebody wrote in and said, you know, before COVID, we hired someone who picked our kids up from school because none of us could imagine not, you know, just like leaving work at three o'clock to pick the kids up from school. And now I just put a block on my calendar. I'm going to be out for that hour while I pick my kids up from school and move them to their activities or bring them home and get them engaged in something. And then I can go back to meetings. And I think that it has changed. Like people figured out how to do workarounds when there weren't childcare. And we've seen people stick to some of those workarounds. And some of that is in terms of the number of hours they're actually working um, the ways in which they're working or willingness to go into the work site. And I think we've seen that stick. Um, and if you look at surveys of younger generations, it seems like, um, you know, that there might be a real change. And that change isn't women staying home with the kids. It's people doing a better job of blending family life into work. And when I say people there, that's parents of, all genders
0: I think that's really interesting to to just talk about kind of how cultural shifts, or at least cultural attitudes can impact you know changes in uh, I guess, the appreciation for unpaid labor and, and those types of activities. Um, but I know you mentioned you know it's difficult to measure, and it's difficult to wrap our heads, you know what exactly we consider unpaid labor. Mm-hmm. Um, so beyond you know these cultural shifts, or cultural attitude shifts, is there any way that public policy can address, um, you know, or at least consider this unpaid national economic output, or is that just not, you know, a reality with, with being unable to measure this?
2: Well, in in a lot of ways, there are. Um, I mean, public policy does absolutely shape this. Um, you know, in in some countries there is less uh, of a subsidy uh, for stay-at-home moms than there is in the U.S. So in a traditional, uh, in the U.S., because we we tax households as income sharing, if you have somebody who stays home, you're treated as if you have fewer resources than, uh, than you know, if both of you work. So, um you know if you you know it like and this you know i so i I think we have to be careful when we think about how do we design policies to support people staying home because we actually have a lot of policies, so if you if you're somebody who's making a hundred thousand dollars a year and you marry somebody who stays home, then you're treated the same as if you are somebody who makes fifty thousand dollars a year and marries somebody who's earning fifty thousand dollars a year the reality is if you're making a hundred thousand dollars and your spouse can stay home you've got a lot more time to do unpaid labor home production and so in in that measure you're actually quite uh you're you're much better off And so whenever people ask me this question about like, how should we treat unpaid labor? Like, are you asking whether we should tax it? Because it's producing something of value. And, you know, if I pay uh, a childcare provider, $50,000 a year, why she has to pay taxes on that income. And I have to pay taxes on the income that I earned before I give her the $50,000. If I, provide $50,000 worth of child care to my kids, nobody's paying any taxes on it. So there's already a lot of support, like keeping it basically, keeping it off the books is one of the ways in which we create a lot of financial support for it from a public policy perspective. Um, I think one of the things, you know, w- the question is, what do we want policy to do? Do we want policy to not take a position um, on whether you should stay home or work. And in which case, what we would want is policy to be subsidizing child paid childcare because of that tax wedge, right? Because of the fact that if I'm going to work and I'm gonna be able to earn $50,000 a year, but then I gotta shell, you know, 30,000 of that out to a childcare center. and I got to pay my taxes on top i'm left left with very little therefore i might want to just stay home and look after my kids and and that can be a good decision in the short run in fact there are there are books that talk about um there's a really good um book called taxing women where he talks about how women essentially there are years of your life when you have small kids where you pay to work when you look at the tax burden of your income and the what you pay for childcare and what you pay for commuting, you're literally paying to go to work. Why would you ever pay to go to work? Well you pay to go to work because otherwise it might be hard to get back in to the career ladder that you were on and so we've created a policy situation where women who want to be able to continue to progress in their careers, make progress in their careers, have to spend a few years paying to work. And I think there are two potential solutions to that. One is subsidizing more childcare so that it's a little bit more of an even choice. Um, The second is to make it easier for for people to step in and out of the labor market, because, you know, there are many women who probably would prefer to stay home, who keep working because they think the price of stepping out of the labor force is that their career will be very weak when they get back. Um, you know, I um, you no, know, I I give you a story of a a journalist who wrote about this, where she was her and her husband were both roughly equal earners, roughly equal as journalists. And then they had kids and she decided she wanted to stay home with them. And she really enjoyed the time at home, but she's really struggled to get back, get her, her journalism career back on track. And journalism is probably one of the careers where it's easier to get back on track in the sense that, you know, there's a lot of freelancing, et cetera, that you can do. But she looked at her husband who had progressed in the field, had a stable job and she hadn't. And then they divorced and they have very unequal incomes. And she's like, you know, she wrote about how much do I, was I willing to pay as much as I ended up having to pay for those afternoons on the playground? And, and I think, those are really hard decisions for for people to make. And, you know, everyone needs to make their own choice. But when we think about public policy, what, I, what I'd what i like it to be able to do is try to balance out the scales so that people can make the choice that's best for them and not a choice that's based on a unequal taxation um, or unequal treatment that means that you know, well, the best thing for me to do is, is stay home. Now there's another set of of childcare issues where, you know, there are people who would like to be able to invest in skills. They want to be able to go back to school. They'd like to be able to do an apprenticeship and there's not affordable childcare. So they don't want to stay home, but they want childcare to be treated as a real cost of them going to school. A real cost of them going to an apprenticeship program, and again, there, what we really need is to subsidize the paid childcare so that people can make the investments they want to make.
1: You mentioned earlier, like having more subsidized child child childcare. Could you? Are there any other suggestions for what could possibly work to make it easier to step in or out of the labor market? I know that earlier you were talking about how in Nordic countries the unions pay a larger role. Is there any example that we could look to?
2: Well, one of the things that the, particularly the Nordic countries have shown us, but other countries as well, is that it's actually important that both men and women take uh, time off when children are born. Um, so, paternity leave is crucial for equality in the labor force because if you have a world where we make it easy for, you know, we value the unpaid labor, the unpaid childcare labor that women do, we make it easy for women to get maternity leave, you end up with very unequal labor force outcomes. There's sort of nothing to do at that point to equalize things because you have men who have focused entirely on their careers and women who have not and so they have made very very different investments in professional skills by really making it a use it or lose it proposition with paternity leave and and encouraging men to use paternity leave, we end up with a much more equal society because men and women are equally investing in their children and equally investing in their careers. And so I think that that is one of the really important policy considerations, which is, you know, we can shape through policy how we can shape at least the the incentives people face when they come to making choices about investing in children and investing in their careers and if we get it wrong we can end up giving the incentive for men to invest only in careers and women to invest disproportionately in children and then you end up with unequal labor force um Unequal labor force outcomes that are really hard to to sort of adjust with other mechanisms.
1: Um, to another question is with um, policy, why should policymakers consider an equal economy important for maintaining economic stability?
2: When I look at like, why does it matter that we have an economy where everybody gets a chance? to put their talents to the best use possible, I think of it as one where we, we can be as as productive. I mean, l- let me step back for a second. So what are we trying to do? We're trying to live the best life possible. How do we live the best life possible? We do the least amount of work we can to get the most amount of stuff we can. Well, how do we do the least amount of work to get the most amount of stuff? Well, we do that by having everybody do the thing that they're most talented at, and then we trade, right? That's why trade is so valuable. I think people get really confused when they hear about trade and they immediately think that we're talking about international trade. The only thing that's different between international trade and the rest of the stuff we do is that we're gonna cross a border. But every day we trade. I trade inside my house, you know, I i might clean up from dinner and somebody else is going to cook dinner right i'm i'm very good at organizing our travel i organize the travel my uh my partner is much better at organizing uh, you know our internets and browser you know our internet and uh network right so we don't we're faster when we're able to specialize in the things that we do. And we run into problems if we can't take advantage of our individual talents. And there are lots and lots of blocks in the economy um, that get in the way of everybody recognizing their individual talents. And those blocks mean that as a country, we're able to produce less. And Uh, or we have to work more or ultimately we work more and produce less blah right that's the the real that's the real challenge and so the when people talk about GDP growth what we're not talking about is not so much like you know let's just try to produce as much stuff possible but what the real goal is producing is, is really what we call total factor productivity growth. We want to produce more with fewer resources. Um, And we do that by exploiting, or economists say exploit like it's a good thing, but of course normal people are like, exploiting is terrible. Um, Really making the most of uh, our ideas and our talents. And we can do that when we have an economy that's working for everybody. So if we've got a whole bunch of people who are who are left on the sidelines well, well then we're not we're not making the most of their talents and if we're not making the most of their talents well then we're not all able to rise to the highest standard of living possible and i you know that idea that together we can you know be more productive i think is really important so when i think about think about things like um taking care of our kids or taking care taking care of the caregiving roles that we all play. You know there's certainly something to be said for looking after your own kids. I think my kids are fantastic and I love spending time with them and there's I know them better than anyone else and there are sometimes where I have insights that no one else can have. But you know the the truth is that I'm not, I can't be an expert history teacher, and an expert geometry teacher, and an expert English teacher. That's why I send them to school where there are experts who can teach them those things. And even when they're young, I think that they benefit from some expertise. And that, that And that has allowed me to focus on on my expertise. And so the question we all have when we're trying to think about how much stuff should we do for ourselves, how much stuff should we do out in the world and engage in trade, is how we want to really balance this idea of, the, the joy of, you know, caring for your, you know, elderly parent or your sick spouse and really being there for someone you love and the fact is that you know boy there's a lot of specialized medical knowledge that somebody who does this for a living and also emotional strength that somebody who does this for a living can bring to the table and you got to balance that with your own you know your own desire to care give and of course all of that is then what economists would focus on is is also related to your opportunity cost. Your opportunity cost is what else would you be doing? What else would you be doing is your your career, your job. And, and people are gonna come to that with different opportunity costs uh, based on the work that they do, where they are in their career, what they've done so far. And so it, that's why it's so important that everybody can make their, their own um, decisions. But when we're looking overall at the economy, it's really important that we have a world that has opportunities and ability for um, everyone to be able to make the moves that they want to make. And there are all sorts of crazy blocks that get in the way of people being able to do that. And I think that's unhealthy for them as an individual, it's unhealthy for the economy.
0: I think that was very well said. Well, I know we're, we're a little bit past time here, Dr. Stevenson, but just wanted to, to again say thank you so much for being able to join us. I know I learned a lot from our conversation and I'm, I'm sure Aurelia did too.
2: <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.